Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. Hello, my name is Grzegorz Stets, and I'm an EU-China analyst at Merrick's. Welcome to the final part of our three-episode series on the EU's position in the Indo-Pacific. In this series, following the release of the EU's Indo-Pacific strategy, we investigate what the EU wants to do and what can it do in the region, and we also consider what implications this may have on the bloc's relations with China. To conclude this series, we talk today with Mathieu Duchatel, director of the Asia program at Institut Montaigne and one of the leading voices in China debates in France. Mathieu, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for having me. So France holds a special position in the context of European debates on Indo-Pacific, as it is itself an Indo-Pacific country. And what we've seen under President Macron is that Paris's interest in the region seems to be constantly growing, as we were shown through the development of dedicated strategic documents uh, from French Ministry of Defense, from French Ministry of Foreign Affairs, that have been coming out since 2018. So what are actually France's interests and objectives in the Indo-Pacific? Well, as you rightly mentioned, um, the French focus on the Indo-Pacific space comes from the Ministry of Defense, uh, which today is called the Ministry of Armed Forces. And even before the defense strategy for the Indo-Pacific was published in 2018, uh, and before the concept of Indo-Pacific was formulated that clearly and adopted by government agencies, uh, I think that the focus was on French territories and exclusive economic zones in the Indian Ocean and in the Pacific Ocean. And to get a sense of the importance of those spaces for France, which has the second largest exclusive economic zone in the world, so thanks to those territories, uh, you can go back to the speech given by former defense minister Jean-Yves Le Drian, who is currently the Minister of Foreign Affairs to the Shangri-La Dialogue in 2016. He articulates the view that there is a major issue with the maritime order that links these French territories and exclusive economic zones to the question of the South China Sea and explains why France perceives that uh, going forward uh, there is a potential threat to French sovereignty and economic interest in that area. So I would argue that the starting point is a very realistic and classic approach of sovereignty and security. Among those territories, two are in fact in a state of um, low level, uh, low intensity disputes. There is the question of the scattered islands uh, in the Indian Ocean with Madagascar. And there's also the question of the delimitation of France's and Vanuatu's exclusive economic zones around New Caledonia. So even though those issues are not high-level intensity conflicts or disputes, there is a potential risk going forward from a French sovereignty and security perspective. And I think that um, initially 
the adoption of an Indo-Pacific outlook by the French government really marked an evolution away from a very Sinocentric approach to Asia. And this is where you could argue France differs from Germany in its approach of the Indo-Pacific. From the start, France focused its efforts on key strategic partners in the region, and especially Australia, India, and Japan. India being listed as France's number one uh, strategic partner in the campaign book of then-candidate Macron to the presidential elections of 2017. Uh, and I think what initially came from the Ministry of Defense uh, moved up the ladder of decision-making in France and really became a presidential priority during the presidency of Macron after 2017. Clearly, the large arms contracts with India and with Australia are and were you know, key elements of French engagement in the region. And what started as a kind of defense approach to security and sovereign interest and also an attempt to contribute to a maritime order that is governed by the rule of law and the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea evolved into something much larger as uh, other countries were pushing for their own Indo-Pacific strategy, and especially the United States, because it's uh, late during the Trump administration that the U.S. took on board on the ideas of uh, and the advocacy of Japan and, and Australia regarding the Indo-Pacific. And so you have what you have now, which is the 2021 French strategy for the Indo-Pacific that is now uh, much larger than uh, what it was initially because it covers not only security and defense, but also connectivity, multilateralism, climate change, biodiversity, ocean governance, etc., etc. And what also changed during those few years was that the initial narrow focus on security and sovereignty gave way in the context of the U.S.-China confrontation during the Trump administration to what was articulated by uh, French diplomats as a third way. And this has been a big change. In fact, it has been a big evolution or a significant evolution for France that this was articulated that way uh, and no longer as mostly a question of uh, security and maritime order. And referring exactly to the point that you made before, um, how does France's approach compared to the other two European countries that have dedicated Indo-Pacific strategies, so Germany and Netherlands? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I think that um, the main difference is this French focus on key strategic partners and bilateral ties as the main focus of the strategy. And this efforts towards India, towards Japan, and initially towards Australia. When you look at the German Indo-Pacific strategic paper, what is really striking is the inclusiveness 
of China and the focus on ASEAN centrality. And I think in terms of uh, at least rhetorical positioning, it's a very different approach. But that said, uh, France, the Netherlands and Germany have been able to work together within the EU system to push for an EU Indo-Pacific strategy, which represents the common denominator of all European states. We have a document which is going to be implemented, and that was not a given that um, all EU member states would be on board with an EU Indo-Pacific strategy. There was a lot of resistance on the way, including from the Commission and not only member states. So the document that we have is the lowest common denominator. And I think it reflects, in fact, perhaps more the German positioning than uh, at least what was initially the French positioning on the narrow security and defense agenda. But I think that the European document, in fact, hides the fact that there are big differences from country to country among member states regarding the importance of the Indo-Pacific strategy. Uh, and even though everyone signed up to the document, I think that for many states in the EU, the Indo-Pacific is clearly not a strategic priority and clearly less of a priority than it is for France. I think it's interesting to keep in mind that um, the French focus on the Indo-Pacific is resented by some countries, let's say the neighbors of the Balkan states, you know, as uh, a, a mismatch with their own priorities. Um, and there are states within the EU which consider that um, France pays too much attention or spends too much energy on those issues and not sufficiently to issues closer at home, um, thinking, of course, of the Balkans, but also on difference of approach that remain with regards to how to approach Russia. And there is another element which I think um, is not solved despite the fact that we have a common EU in the Pacific strategy, and that's the notion of strategic autonomy, which is pushed by France, which is also pushed by the political leadership of the External Action Service, which, which remains quite divisive across Europe. And there's a link to the Indo-Pacific. The fact that um, I mentioned the third way, which is currently the French diplomatic language regarding the Indo-Pacific. Uh, we are a power that proposes a third way between the US and China, so we don't fully align with our U.S. ally in the Indo-Pacific, despite the alliance. Uh, we want to offer alternatives to states in the region so that they don't have a binary choice. That's the language, that's the posture. Uh, but I think for, for that matter, um, it's not entirely convincing to all our partners within the European Union. Thank you very much for this overview. And now maybe to bring China into the picture. So Earlier this year, France sent its nuclear submarine on a mission to the region, publicly announcing that those exercises are taking place in the South China Sea. So it seemed like a clear signal towards China and 
was interpreted as such by Beijing, which protested emissions. So can you maybe unpack for us what was the reasoning behind this specific mission? Yeah, it was um, clearly an upgrade from what has been the regular French naval presence in the South China Sea with surface combatants sailing through the South China Sea. The fact that a French nuclear attack submarine was sent to the South China Sea and afterwards the fact that the French defense minister mentioned that this mission had taken place, I think is meant as a sign of the resolution of France to continue its naval efforts in support of freedom of navigation in the South China Sea. I think this has been a constant approach by the French military over the years. It's easy to speculate that um, sending a nuclear submarine is also perhaps a signal to the United States that uh, in case there would be a conflict within the first island chain, that could be the sort of contribution that uh, the French Navy could make to a coalition led by the United States. This is my own interpretation. This has not been you know, the clear message given by the French Armed Forces Ministry to explain the presence of that submarine. But overall, I think it's a signal that um, the French Navy wants to join efforts to keep the South China Sea open. And would you say that this is a good example of general dynamics between France and China in the region? So relatively tense one, or is it the exception And normally Paris would rather avoid this kind of shows of force or creating tension with Beijing? I think that um, the French approach with regards to the South China Sea has been constant over the past five years. It has been regular presence in support of freedom of navigation under and close. Contrary to the United States um, and contrary to the UK, there has never been a direct challenge to the 12 nautical miles zone around the uh, territories controlled by China in the South China Sea, so no freedom of navigation operation as defined by the United States, but just constant signaling. Um, And even though there are clearly many important disagreements in France-China relations, I think that this particular aspect of freedom of navigation has remained a constant, in fact. And we also have to discuss one other regional hotspot, which is the Taiwan Strait. In the context of the intensified PRC's military aircraft's intrusions into Taiwan's air defense identification zone that we are observing right now, and in the context of the recent mission of French senators to Taiwan, How would you describe French position on Taiwan and the tensions in the Taiwan Strait? Well, I think that France um, is among the countries that um, watches very carefully the security situation in the Taiwan Strait. The French arms industry is still linked to the Taiwanese military because of the contracts signed in the early 1990s. So there is a low-level defense relationship uh, still going on between France and Taiwan. I think that there is a perception that uh, the freedom of navigation question also applies to the Taiwan Strait. 
And that was made clear two years ago when um, there was um, some sort of um, friction between uh, a French naval ship sailing through the Taiwan Strait and a PLA naval ship, about which we know little, except that uh, the French Navy was disinvited from the anniversary in Qingdao of the Chinese Navy. So there was a low-level friction, or friction, really. And I think that politically, when it comes to diplomatic ties, the story of uh, the parliamentarian visit to Taiwan, which is still going on in the media, uh, is a little bit overblown because these exchanges at the level of parliaments have been uh, you know, regularly conducted and remain the normal state of affairs. It's not a major increase of contacts. It's something that the Chinese embassy to France has decided that they should address as a matter of priority and which in fact is causing friction because of their decision to tackle that issue. Um, I think that overall, what really, to me, is the um, space for further development in France-Taiwan relations going forward, one, I would say the fact that Taiwan is an important partner for rethinking supply chains. And the second one is that uh, it's more in terms of image, so it's less maybe concrete and substantial, but, you know, the governance um, of the COVID-19 crisis in Taiwan uh, has been something that improved the image of Taiwan in France and in Europe. And so there's a good positive background for further deepening the relationship between France and Taiwan. But overall, I would say that um, we should not be misled by the noise around the visit of the French parliamentarians to Taiwan, because that's not a, you know, a key sign. That if it's a sign of something, it's a sign of um, a Chinese change of approach. And talking about the change of approach, let's move to AUKUS' announcement of Australia's cancellation of the over 55 billion euro submarine procurement contract with France, which was definitely a shock to everyone and was a cause of a major diplomatic crisis. So has this development changed anyhow France's plans and outlook on the region? And what could be the lessons learned here? Well, to be clear, this is um, a blow to the French Indo-Pacific strategy because this contract was structuring not only for the French defense industry, but also for French defense engagement in the region. It was placing France and Australia in uh, what has been described as a 50-year marriage for or defense industries and, uh, and military cooperation. So one pillar of the French engagement in the Indo-Pacific is suddenly wiped out uh, by the AUKUS agreement. It causes a rethink in France regarding uh, how to approach the Indo-Pacific. I think that the French interest in the region stay, the EEZ stay, the ambition to increase French presence in that region stay as well. Uh, I think the focus on key partners have to be adjusted, clearly. But um, what I think is, um, you know, essential to understand is that what this has caused is a rise of anti-US and 
anti-external engagement voices in the French political context. A number of uh, political leaders called for leaving again the NATO integrated comments. Um, this is not the policy of the French government, clearly, but um, we, you have heard this again. Uh, but also you've heard voices arguing that uh, maybe the French focus should be narrower and less ambitious. And maybe France should focus narrowly on its sovereignty interest in the region. So, you know, this gives rises to voices that are supporting the idea of, um, you know, shrinking of um, the French outlook in the Indo-Pacific. But I think that immediately, uh, or in terms of short-term impacts, this increases the importance of India, Japan, and Indonesia on the French foreign policy agenda, because I think that the approach centered on key partners will remain. It's more on the, in the DNA of the French foreign policy. And then when it comes to US-French relations, there have been some demands uh, made by the French to the US side during the visit of Secretary Blinken and National Security Advisor Sullivan last week to Paris. One part of those demands is um, about the Indo-Pacific. I think the reality uh, is that France still needs to convince the United States that it can be an important partner in that space. And um, if that crisis leads to anything positive, that is that uh, the two sides, you know, finally address that issue with a sentiment of urgency. Related to that, following the AUKUS debacle, it, it seems that, as you said, Paris has intensified its reflection and is calling for doubling down on strategic autonomy, lobby to postpone the first operational meeting of the EU-US Trade and Technology Council. So would you say that there is any fundamental reassessment in Paris as to how the relationship with the US and the relationship of the EU with US and China should look like? I think fundamental reassessment um, is a bit too harsh. What is clear from what has been the French attitude towards the Trade and Technology Council, was that in the end, the joint statement of the Trade and Technology Council is still quite ambitious. Uh, if you look at the deliverables, the agenda on export control, uh, investment screening, standards and norms, semiconductors, etc., etc., is certainly very, very close to what it would have been without the AUKUS crisis. Uh, we know that it's not the case for the semiconductor agenda, and it's because uh, this has been the approach of France, but also uh, of the Commission, in fact, to first get our act together when it comes to semiconductor manufacturing in Europe. So the focus of the TTC's agenda on semiconductors is on short-term supply chain issues. But I think that overall, there has been a lot of noise around it in the lead-up to the uh, TTC summit in Pittsburgh. But overall, impact has been limited. I think that going forward, what could be affected, depending on how the US approaches France going forward, is the extent to which... Um, you know, France play the long when it comes to the enforcement of 
those restrictions with regards to tech transfers to China. I think France seems to me quite determined to play it uh, in a transatlantic format. But there are many constituencies within France, and, and I think that um, you know, with AUKUS, the U.S. has created um, a lot of, let's say, um, complaints among um, many players and, and distrust. So I think that those things for which diplomatic formats already exist maybe a little bit harder to implement and, and discuss in practice in the coming years with the Biden administration. And a final question, we want to ask you about some future predictions. And of course, we have the French presidency coming up. So what could be the China-related developments during the French presidency? And is there any possibility that French elections are just going to maybe shift the position of France on China or on in the Pacific? No, I don't think so. I think that um, China is probably not going to be a huge election topic, but um, I think that the U.S. is going to be part of the French uh, electoral cycle. And that's clearly a consequence of AUKUS. Um, in terms of the French presidency of the EU, well, France is uh, planning a European summit on defense. France is planning an EU-Africa summit. And there are talks that there should be an Indo-Pacific event during the French presidency, which raises really questions of uh, who attends and which formats, etc. I think that overall, when it comes to relations with China, at the EU level, uh, France is one of the countries um, you know, very much engaged in developing an EU toolbox of defensive measures on investment, export control, etc., etc., and working in a European format on those issues. And I think that those issues that are a little bit technical or technocratic, but for which there is already a political agreement, are just being unrolled and will be, in fact, decoupled from the uh, cycle of the successive presidencies of the Council. So, you know, no, no big development on that front. Could France try to revive the uh, CHI process, the agreement on investment with China? Some people might think about it inside the French system. My sense is that the uh, political environments uh, in Europe, uh, in the European Parliament, are unfavorable to such an initiative. So I would not expect a French action on that front. Mathieu, thank you very much for joining us. It was a pleasure to host you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org.